Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Hiking in state parks is popular in the summer months. How does Connecticut's budget impasse impact recreation around the state? Coming up, we'll hear from the Connecticut Forest and Parks Association. Now, as you walk through local woods, did you ever think about the trails or paths that existed long before the settlers came to North America? Today, where we live, we hear about efforts to recognize and map the trails of Native American tribes. Later in the show, we'll learn more about the trails Connecticut tribes used and what discoveries today tell us about the tribe's beliefs and customs. Now, author Robert Moore wrote a book called On Trails, and it explores how trails help us understand the world. In the book, he writes, few Americans can say with certainty that they've seen an old Native American trail, but everyone has seen the ghost of one and even traveled along it. Our next two guests know quite a bit about Native American trails, and they're both North Carolina residents. Joining us by phone now is Lamar Marshall. He's Resource Director for Southeast Heritage. It's a group dedicated to reconstructing historical landscapes. Lamar, welcome to the show. I'm pleased to be here. Also on the phone with us is Dr. Brett Riggs, a research archaeologist and Sequoia Distinguished Professor of Cherokee Studies at Western Carolina University in Cullowhee, North Carolina. Dr. Riggs, welcome to the show. Hello. Glad to be here. I'll start with Lamar. Uh, Take us back in time uh, when the Southern Appalachians were home to the Cherokee Nation. How extensive were these trails? Well, there was a huge infrastructure of these these trails that uh, connected to all the other trails that basically a continental-wide trading and trail system, but there's some, uh, some of the trails here are very, very important. And uh, and Dr. Riggs is going to, in fact, I I think it'd be best we let off with Dr. Riggs to give us a background on these trails that he's worked on. Then I'm going to give you a more of a general history of what I've done. Is that okay? That's sure. I understand that Lamar's walked a lot of these trails, but uh, Dr. Briggs over at Western Carolina University, you've studied uh, these trails, also uh, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee uh, Nation for some time. Tell us about the trails and how they were developed. Well, if you if you think about the the trail system or this, this whole uh, matrix, this network that, that cross-cut, uh, cross-cut the entire continent. Um, many of these were founded upon um, what had initially been the, the animal paths that took the, the routes of least resistance across the landscape. And when the first peoples entered uh, this continent, you know, they, they already found established uh, routes used by particularly larger, what they would view as game animals, that that uh, interlinked the entire area. And so many of the, uh, the oldest uh, uh, trails that Native peoples used were already in place when they, when they arrived and found them. And Native peoples, particularly um, uh, Cherokee folks here in the mountains, often thought of these trails as, as being an integral part of the landscape, not necessarily even of, of a cultural construction, but something that was was um, uh, just an, an inherent and implicit part of this landscape that 
such that everything was viewed as being uh, held together by paths. Even even the routes that uh, uh, fish in the water took, they followed certain trails. Everything was conceptualized in, in terms of trails, so that even um, in a in a broader sense, you know, if you look at at the construction of the of the native cosmos, the the uh, the upper world, the world above, is linked by trails. The the Milky Way is a trail. Uh, the lower world, the world beneath, is all linked by trails, and and so this world is just the same as that. So these trails were seen as being a very um, natural part of the landscape, and um, a very important part of the landscape to Native peoples. When we're, war- when we're talking about trails, so uh, following the river or following ridges? Um, both. Um, you have you have ridgetop trails um, that, uh, uh, you know, interconnect places that are, you know, perhaps uh, separated by ridgelines here in the southern mountains. Um, so there would be trails that would follow ridge tops, trails that would cross-cut the grain of, um, of the mountains, and trails that would follow watercourses as well. Now, Lamar, also on the phone with us, uh, you've been surveying these trails for some time, walking many of them. How did this start for you? Well, I guess about 50 years ago, um, I started really studying the old maps, records, and journals so I could produce modern maps <clears throat> with the old trails and trail corridors, Native American towns and settlements. But uh, when I was very young, I was very fascinated with the lifestyle of Native Americans because I could see, you know, we, we, we grew up in a corporate world and structured, and the, you have to go to work every day. And the, the Native Americans seemed to be one of the freest peoples on Earth before they became involved in trade with uh, other with the Europeans. Now, uh, Dr. Riggs was talking about uh, how these uh, trails uh, and the meaning of the trails in, in Native American culture. But when you're looking and going into the woods to try to find some of these old trails, are many of them covered up now? I mean, when we look at um, our modern transportation system, some of the roads in our states may have uh, followed these trails as well? Absolutely. I would say that... Uh, there's very few intact premier segments of the trails left. One trail in North Carolina is called the Unicoi Turnpike that Dr. Riggs has well documented through early surveys. But where you find your best examples, if they're still around, are on national forest, on public lands, because they've obviously not been developed and they were, um, you know, kind of set aside. Um, but the, I would say that the, uh, the native trails and their or the, uh, I'd call it the blueprint or the circuitry of our modern road system because uh, you'd have an animal trail, it became a Cherokee trail, and then the first uh, white settlers would come in and they would widen this, these trails into wagon roads or turnpikes, and then uh, later on they got paved and, and et cetera. So it's an ancient road system that's been here for a long, long time. How has the landscape changed? Take when we uh, was mentioned taking us back into time uh, when the Cherokees walked uh, these trails that they created. Uh, what did they see? What did the forest look like back then, and how has it changed today? Well, that's one of the interesting things in the work that we do is uh, a lot of these records uh, and and historical maps uh, teach us about the ecology of, and I focus on around seventeen hundred uh, onward myself. But you find that in the early days that the 
say that the forest, the, the, forest, the trees were much, much larger in the mountains. They were, they'd never been cut. Um, there was grass that was growing three or four or five feet high sometimes in the forest because millions of passenger pigeons would, would lie in the trees and, and, uh, and fertilize the, the forest. You had the American chestnut that was uh, obviously a huge uh, resource for the bears and, and the <clears throat> turkeys and animals. And when the chestnut disappeared, of course, the, that kind of crashed uh, the portion of the ecosystem. But uh, you have what you call ecological engineers. The beaver, they you know, dammed up the waterways and the uh, passenger pigeons. And then the Native Americans themselves were ecological engineers because they, they, they used fire to burn, especially like in Tennessee and Kentucky where you had grasslands. They burned the, the land in order to produce more grass for the buffalo and the animals they hunted. And so today we might see a lot of these thickets that wouldn't have existed when the Cherokee uh, were in the woods, uh, making sure that they were, uh, as you said, were burning certain areas uh, to make it a little bit easier? Well, the, I guess sometimes they'd burn for just to keep the uh, underbrush down or the insects uh, down. But uh, one thing, that in this part of the country, there was a lot of wild strawberries. And in order for these strawberries to continue to be like a strawberry plains, as they call them, they would burn that. And, but uh, they didn't do a lot of burning in the upper and high mountains down here because there wasn't any reason to. This is where we live. Today we're looking at efforts to uh, find old Native American trails and map them. Uh, on the phone with us is Lamar Marshall, Resource Director for Southeast Heritage uh, and a North Carolina resident. Um, he's walking a lot of these trails, helping to find them, old Cherokee trails uh, in western North Carolina. Also on the phone, Dr. Brett Riggs, a Sequoia Distinguished Professor of Cherokee Studies at Western Carolina University in Cullowhee, North Carolina. Uh, Dr. Riggs, how are you working with Lamar um, as he He's finding these trails, comparing old uh, maps and, and uh, working uh, with um, what he's finding on the ground. What are you doing in terms of helping him with this project? Well, we work with many of the same resources, and our, our foci are similar. I'm, I'm primarily involved in documentation efforts for the um, Trail of Tears National Historic Trail. And in western North Carolina, we have um, a... Uh, remarkable set uh, or remarkable sets of documentation that that assist us in that effort so i'm I'm focused on uh, landscape reconstruction for a moment in time uh, whereas Lamar has a, a much broader view there but uh, the the work that we do uh, each informs the other uh, in terms of our understanding of the landscape because the, the landscape that existed in the 1830s at the time of the forced Cherokee deportation from the southern mountains is, of course, uh, a landscape that has developed for millennia. And, and Lamar's work um, is, helps to bring into focus the, the entire uh, transportation network that was then uh, used and exploited at the time of the Cherokee removal. And, and how are you both working with uh, members of the Cherokee tribe? What is their reaction to this project? Again, um, mapping out uh, these old trails, uh, land that was once theirs that was taken away. Well, I think what we see is, is that the lands for particularly the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, a federally recognized tribe here in, in uh, the southern Appalachians, that their... Uh, their world, their landscape has been uh, so circumscribed uh, 
historically through the 19th century and into the 20th centuries that what our efforts um, accomplish is is to to give folks sort of access to their historical landscapes again, so to create at least um, a um, uh, cognitive reclaiming of of this landscape as theirs, this this place that was theirs for for hundreds and thousands of years, um, to uh, allow sort of um, a reclaiming. A reclaiming of, of a, a sense of um, belonging and ownership on, on these places from which they have been at least legally alienated for 175, 200 years in some cases. And Lamar Marshall, again, your resource director for Southeast Heritage, I believe some of the the members of this group are also uh, members of, of the Cherokee tribe. Uh, their reaction to your work and how they're contributing to it? Well, I'd say that uh, the last eight years I've been funded by the Cherokee uh, Eastern Band through their Cherokee Preservation Foundation. And Brett Riggs and I I both are are involved in their GIS uh, program. So what I'm doing is taking eight years of work and and building story maps that be online that can be used by teachers, by anybody in the tribe, and and, and other people also, uh, where they can uh, have a graphic uh, interactive map and let's put it this way. You get online, and there's a story, say, of a Cherokee territorial claim, 1700, in the ecology. <clears throat> These story maps have a panel on one side, and you can have videos, uh, images, graphics, uh, connections to other sites. And then the, the bigger part of the screen has a map that is interactive. You can zoom in, and there's the Cherokee trails, there's the towns, and you can, you know, sh- and they can actually get in there and, and, and you know, move around. This is incredible resource. And I'd asked this earlier, Lamar, uh, about the process, and you said that you compare a lot of the old maps. When you're out in the woods, are you literally uh, drawing what you're seeing in journals? And, and how do you translate all that you're discovering um, to then w- work with Dr. Riggs in this digital mapping project? Well, I, as a background in surveying, I carry a field book with, my, with me and a, G, a GPS, of course. But first of all, you have to uh, determine where a trail might be or might not be. Uh, I use uh, historic maps from before 1700 to, to present. We dig out early surveys where they actually went out and surveyed uh, tracts of land, and it says cross the Indian Trail at this point. And you got two different systems of the meets and bounds in North Carolina, but in Alabama, where I worked, uh, the land is in sections, townships, and ranges, and the surveyors were meticulous sometimes to detail where a trail crossed. I dig out oral testimonies and chronicles. And one of the most valuable things is to find diaries and journals, <clears throat> particularly some of the military journals, that document mile by mile exactly, like in, in 1761, 1776, how they, where they traveled and, and, and describe the landscape. Mm-hmm. And so I take all of this, determine where a trail might be, and if it goes down a valley, I start on the ridgetop, and I'll transect from one ridgetop to the other to see if I can find an original trail in the bottom. In many cases, they've been destroyed by logging operations. So uh, it's uh, when you find a premier section, it's a big find. Um, but that's, and then, I, of course, GPS it, come back and uh, put it into GIS and document it. Mm. 
Um, as you walk through the woods, you know, you're talking to us here in Connecticut. A lot of people enjoy hiking, but I don't think they're thinking about uh, the trails that were once there um, from from the indigenous people uh, many, many, many years ago. Um, what would you say to the, the hiker the next time they're out in the woods? What should they look for um, as they're, we're more used to the conventional hiking trails, the much, the wider trails that are much easier to walk on than, say, these these old trails that you're finding? Some of these old trails are, are, are so overgrown with rhododendron and other things that it'd be hard to even, even follow them. And some of them uh, are being considered by the Forest Service that is to, to designate them, document them, and then open them for people to walk on. But uh, a hacker just walking through the woods would need to know, have something in his hand, you know, to know where there was a trail. And uh, I'd say one of the most important things, if you're hacking on one of these old Indian trails, as you're seeing the mountains, you're seeing the, the exact perspective that these early Native Americans saw when they walked those trails. And I've uh, mapped a trail in Alabama where Davy Crockett uh, went uh, during the war, went down the Black Warriors Path, and I found premier sections of that. And when you're standing in a path and you know that, you know, Davy Crockett was there or, or, or Dragon Canoe walked this exact path and that you're seeing the same things they saw, it, it kind of takes you back into time. And Dr. Riggs, as people walk through the woods, whether it's in Connecticut or uh, western North Carolina, are there certain markers they should look for or um, certain trees that may have been bent at one time uh, that was a marker for uh, a Native American as uh, they were using these trails? Well, I think not so much uh, in in the vegetation because that has changed so dramatically Mm -hmm. uh, in the 20th century. But sometimes you'll see... um, uh, rock piles or cairns that uh, are trail side and mark mark trail locations or important locations along trails. And quite often, if these trails have been used for many hundreds of years, they're they're entrenched. So they're, they're, uh, you know, sunken road beds or sunken trail beds that that you'll follow. Um, You know, often that... uh, uh, sort of cross-cut the slopes in in ways that erosional features would not. Uh, and so, for instance, in documenting uh, segments of the Unicoi Turnpike Road, which was it was an ancient road across the southern mountains, an ancient trail, um, archaeological sites along the trail indicate its use for at least 10,000 years. Um, but it was developed in the early 19th century as a commercial wagon road, and that development had uh, created a, a roadbed that in, in some places is several feet deep, uh, so it looks like a, almost a, a small canal across the southern mountains. Uh, we're uh, working to, to document the entire uh, span of this, of this road, about 120 miles across the southern mountains, and ultimately, we'd like to see um, see at least portions of it available for public use there. But it's marked, um, you know, it, it's, its very presence is, is noted by the passage of, of uh, wagons, hundreds of wagons, uh, hundreds of thousands of head of livestock across this one narrow corridor across the mountains. Mm. Sounds like really extensive work. Anything like this being done in other parts of the country, uh, Dr. Riggs? There is, in fact, um, really all across our country, uh, many efforts that are sponsored by um, uh, the U.S. Forest Service uh, and the National Park Service to document at least some of the more important 
transportation routes across the country. For instance, the um, uh, National Park Service has a, a long-distance trails office that um, manages uh, historic trailways um, across the country. So you see um, uh, El Camino Real, uh, the Santa Fe Trail, and, and various routes like that that are important to our history as a nation. And uh, I think Lamar and I would, would assert that these native trails that you know predate the the European arrival are equally important to the to the history and heritage of our nation. And I, I think we should stress, uh, Lamar, and I think you touched on this earlier. When you do discover these trails, um, depending on um, the, the the communication with the, the the Forest Service, you're working to keep parts of these areas from being logged and these trails from being destroyed. Well, one of the things that came out of my work was I identified about 150 miles of of a <clears throat> trails and potential trails or trails corridors in the national forest, and I took uh, GIS maps and I, you submit them to the U.S. Forest Service, and they and they automatically put this into a cultural resource uh, protective uh, type of management. <clears throat> and before they would go in and do any timber management or road building, they would. They would go send out people out to do a field survey and check these and, and determine what the significance of the trails are. Some of them are, you know, maybe completely um, eradicated. Some of them I found are under U.S. Forest Service timber collector roads. They were just adapted by the, you know, Forest Service. So, but there is an effort going on right now in the new forest plan of North Carolina to to protect every um, Cherokee trail that can be identified on the national forest. And you've been doing this for some time. Um, after you turn in the data to uh, the Cherokee Nation, uh, what's next for you, Lamar? I know you're a conservationist. <clears throat> well, I'm going to continue my historical research and continue the same work because uh, in the course of this, uh, the last eight years, I've got over 100,000 digital images of archives, historic maps, and uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'll you know, write some e-books or something. <laughs> Well, I want to thank Lamar Marshall, Resource Director for Southeast Heritage. Uh, he lives in North Carolina, and we appreciate uh, your time talking about the work you're doing, Lamar. Thank you. You're welcome. Also, Dr. Brett Riggs, Lamar's working with him to uh, digitize these maps. Again, the data will be um, given over to the Cherokee Nation. Dr. Brett Riggs is a Sequoia Distinguished Professor of Cherokee Studies at Western Carolina University in Cullowee, North Carolina. Dr. Riggs, uh, very important work. Thank you so much for telling us a little bit about it. Thank you, Lizzie. And I do want to recommend this book on trails and exploration uh, by Robert Moore. And he has a chapter here where he walks with Lamar Marshall. Um, you can uh, look that book up as well. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Many Native American tribes lived in Connecticut. After the break, we'll learn about them and their trails. And you can join the conversation, too. Have you thought about the paths the Native Americans once used in the woods you now visit? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier, we learned about efforts to map Cherokee trails in western North Carolina. Have there been similar efforts here in Connecticut? And what discoveries have been found in local woods and along the rivers that have helped archaeologists and others understand the indigenous people that once lived in our state? Joining the conversation now is Lucianne 
Levine, or Lavin, Director of Research and Collections at the Institute for American Indian Studies in Washington, Connecticut. She's an anthropologist and archaeologist, author of Connecticut's Indigenous Peoples, What Archaeology, History, and Oral Traditions Teach Us About Their Communities and Cultures. Uh, Lucienne, welcome to the show. Thank you for asking me. And uh, pronounce your last name for me. Pardon me? Uh, pronounce your last name for me. Oh, it's Lavin. Lavin, okay. And then also joining the conversation, Kevin McBride, Director of Research at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'll start with Lucianne. Uh, let's talk about uh, the the old trails here in Connecticut when we're looking at uh, the Native American uh, people. How extensive were they and how were they used, Lucianne? Oh, they were extensive. Um, most, of, most of the trails are now part of Connecticut's transportation system, um, the old Berkshire Path, which connected the Stockbridge uh, uh, Christian Indian village of the Mohicans, um, actually led southward and connected Scattercook, which was a major refuge for most of its uh, time period, and then all the way down to the um, Long Island Sound, connecting with the villages along the coast. And uh, that was a major, it probably went all the way up to Canada. Another um, major trail was the uh, Connecticut uh, um, Coastal Path, which uh, is now known as Route 1. And also a lot of our um, uh, railroad systems follow major Native American trails. And, of course, there were many minor trails, too, that actually connected to various food sources, connected each village to food sources. Um, So uh, it it just crisscrossed Connecticut. Mm. Now, what advice do you have when uh, people are, are going out into the woods? Uh, you mentioned, again, a lot of these old trails are now part of our highway system and road system. But what should people be looking for as they're out, uh, Lucianne, um, in either the western part of the state or the eastern part of the state? Um, looking for as like, far Are there certain as markers as or important boulders that, um, that, that mark where one of these trails may have uh, uh, come near? Um, well... A lot of them actually led to major resources, and that would mean archaeology sites, um, which are most of those obviously are below ground. But there were also a number of uh, uh, ceremonial sites that were located along these trails. In fact, they're actually mentioned in much of the early English and Dutch literature um, on the Northeast, where uh, uh, Europeans actually saw Native people uh, building these stone monuments. For example, Monument Mountain um, at Great Barrington is actually named for uh, a Native American, a large stoked cairn um, that when Native people went by, they would drop a, uh, a stone on it. And uh, actually, the Reverend uh, John Sargent, who was the first minister to the, uh, the Stockbridge uh, Mohegans, actually asked his interpreter, um, who was a Mohegan Indian, why people did that. And, um, and, and uh, there were a number of reasons actually given. Uh, one was to give thanks to a deity. Uh, another one was um, uh, to honor a particular person, a great person in the tribe or tribal event. So there were a number of reasons for uh, building these large monuments. But um, there were a number of them in Connecticut as well. Eva Butler actually uh, published a map that showed where a number of these were once located you know, and um, in the Archaeological Society of Connecticut Bulletin. Mm. 
I mentioned Kevin McBride's on the phone with us, Director of Research at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center. Uh, Kevin, um, tell us about your research and how uh, you're working to learn a little bit more about these trails in, in your region. Um, sure. Uh, hello, Lucianne. How are you? Hi, Kevin. How are you? Good. Um, Lucianne, you know, she has a good perspective on a lot of the um, Western uh, trails. Uh, my particular research has been more in the looking at trails and avenues of transportation, communication within the context of of native uh, connections to other communities, uh, your English settlement of the Connecticut Valley, um, conflict, uh, movement of, of uh, English and, and, and native uh, soldiers in the context of the Pequot War. So, you know, we're we're trying to determine uh, in the context of the Pequot War, 1636-37, uh, with the English, uh, Connecticut English, and later Massachusetts Bay, <clears throat> uh, conducted a year-long war with uh, with the Pequot. Um, there's there's water transportation, obviously, and communication. Um, and, and sometimes that contrasted pretty sharply with different groups. For example, the Dutch probably used mostly water uh, along the coast and the river, whereas English were using a little bit of both. Um, so there's some very interesting, uh, in the context of settlement, there's some very interesting uh, references to the Connecticut Pass, um, which served as uh, an avenue from Boston to the Hartford area for the very first uh, traders. Uh, a guy named Oldham in 1633 is traveling along that trail, and he mentions he lodged every night uh, with, with, uh, uh, in an Indian village, uh, probably Nipmuc and then perhaps Yuangong because he got cl- gets closer to the Connecticut. But that tells you that these, these trails probably are pretty well established. They have been established for probably thousands of years and that their people are locating themselves, you know, along these, um, Kevin, you mentioned the, the Pequot War. Tell us how um, the English may have used these trails uh, when they uh, did their attack on the Pequots. Well, they they certainly used Route One as they as they marched from Narragansett to uh, Mystic, and um, and they encountered along the way several native features there too, uh, a, a fortify a fort in Charlestown, Rhode Island, a Pequot cornfield. Um, but we're also looking at um, two battles that took place uh, on May 26, 1637, between the English and the Pequot, English and their native allies in the Pequot. Um, one of them, uh, a very major one, was um, <clears throat> Battle of Mystic Fort, where the English, 77 English and their native allies attacked and burned a Pequot fortified village, uh, killing over 400 people in a little more than an hour. Um, what we're documenting now is what we call the Battle of the English Withdrawal from the Mystic Fort along the Mystic River, six miles west of the Thames River. And we've been tracking a very circuitous route uh, the English were using, and it's, we're tracking it by basically metal detecting and documenting hundreds of musket balls and other battle debris. And um, it seems to be you know, avoiding wetlands so they don't get ambushed. And then we began to realize that 
it's also following a path of least resistance. We wonder if they're following an existing path or trail. No big insight there. Um, But what we discovered recently was when we stripped away the layers of battle-related objects, we were left with about a half dozen concentrations of Pequot domestic artifacts. And such as? Well, such as scrap brass, trade goods, trade axes, um, uh, Jesuit rings, um, you know, sort of, you know, cut up, a lot of cut up, uh, reprocessed objects. Uh, You know, Native people would do that with, you know, with brass and iron. We found hoes and mattocks and, you know, things like that. And when we put in some excavation units to test the idea that, oh, maybe these are domestic sites, we found evidence of that. And what we began to realize that were the English, the battlefield, um, just is because they're following an existing trail, they happen to be running over or through previous um, villages or domestic sites. Uh, one we know is occupied it on that day and burned by the English. The others, they could have been occupied any time in the 20 to 25 years before based on the you know, presence of, of mm-hmm. English or Dutch trade goods. So what we're looking at is this, you know, a network of, of trails and paths for linking villages and communities. Now, you know, we, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We always knew this in theory, but to actually see it, you know, a half dozen of these villages' domestic sites linked by a trail is, you know, it's pretty interesting, pretty mm-hmm. exciting. And then now we're thinking of if we should be doing more of this to sort of discover where other domestic sites are and seeing how they're linked uh, and where they're located. This is where we live. Today we're looking at efforts to find old Native American trails and uh, the research that's involved. Uh, on the phone with us is Kevin McBride, Director of Research at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center. Also, Lucianne Lavin, Director of Research and Collections at the Institute for American Indian Studies in Washington, Connecticut. She's the author of Connecticut's Indigenous Peoples, What Archaeology, History, and Oral Traditions Teach Us About Their Communities and Cultures. Uh, do you ever wonder about the trails that are in your or backyard or in the woods that you like to visit. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to take a, a call. Laura's calling from Tolland. Laura, you're on the show. Hi. What's your question? Uh, I have a trail in my backyard that's listed on our deed as an old highway. Someone else called it an ancient highway. And right now it's just a trail the deer use mostly. But I was wondering how I would find out more about it. That's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll start with Lucianne. Any any tips for Laura about the, the trail that runs through her property? Oh, um, yeah, there's actually been um, a study of some of the, the old historic um, uh, highways that um, connected uh, Massachusetts uh, colonies with Connecticut uh, early on. And Kevin, I can't remember the name of who wrote it. I know it. I'm pretty sure it was a cultural resource management um, project through the State Historic Preservation Office. And um, if Kevin can remember the author of that, I'm not sure. It might have been Robert Grady. But uh, I know there, there, is, there has been work on, on early trail systems, European trail systems that probably uh, obviously followed 
uh, Native Americans um, mm. trail system. And Laura, we'll have uh, Eric Hammerling on in just a little bit from the Connecticut uh, Parks and uh, Forest and Parks Association that can maybe um, shed some light also on what to do when you're looking for more information about a trail that runs through your property. Um, I wanted to go back to Lucien. We were talking about the Mashantucket Pequots, but there are many indigenous people um, that lived at one time here in Connecticut. You're on the western side of the state. Tell us more about the indigenous people there and some of the what you found and is highlighted at the research, the Institute for American Indian Studies, where you work. Yeah, I think um, Kevin mentioned we have we sort of have different perspectives because, of course, Kevin is now focusing on Mashantucket, um, and I look more at um, intertribal relationships in Western Connecticut. And um, you know, one 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 um, um, physical feature that tied them, of course, was the Housatonic River. But um, a lot of people don't realize that Native people did a lot of walking. They had no problem with walking. Uh, uh, Moravian documents, the Moravians were a Protestant uh, sect, and they had a couple of uh, Moravian missions in Connecticut. One was at Scattercook, and another one was at the uh, uh, Mahican village of uh, Wequadnock in Sharon. And they talk about Native people constantly traveling, even old, older women. And we know these women are old because... The Moravians have baptismal records that show us when they were born and when they died and all kinds of things. Uh, so uh, they had no problem walking, you know, 10, 15, 20 miles, uh, and even more, the, um, you know, the younger uh, men and women. And what they did was they used these trails uh, as uh, a major social and political communication networks between, um, not only between uh, their villages, but also between the villages of other uh, uh, tribes. Mm. There was a uh, Moravian um, tell us about uh, uh, there's a great deal of of, um, of social and political meetings uh, between the Mohican up in Stockbridge and the Scattercook, but also the Scattercook with other groups to the south, uh, going to what the Moravians call the seashore. Um, so we we know that. Uh, they use those trails for for that aspect in their in their cultures. They also I wanted to follow up on Kevin talking about how these trails are very old, and they are they're, they're probably thousands of years old because they were also used for major um, Indian Indian um, uh, economic uh, and and trade systems. Uh, Native people had these uh, trade networks uh, thousands of years before uh, they met. The Europeans. It was just a different type of trading items with the Europeans, but they were used to trading. Mm. And we know this from archaeology that we find, and, and a lot of, uh, a lot, as, as Kevin said, a lot of these villages are found along um, where, where some of these trails were um, because they were nodes in these trading networks with uh, trading partners. And of course, the archaeology in Connecticut, because Connecticut is uh, temperate and soils are acidic, so the only thing that's, that we usually find in the ground are imperishable objects such as stone and pottery. But Roger Williams, um, who was a, uh, uh, a Puritan who didn't want to be, and, and left Massachusetts Bay, came to uh, Rhode Island, founded Providence, and lived among the Narragansett Indians for a number of years. He actually wrote a book on them uh, called A Key Into the Language of the Americas. Uh, Williams tells us that uh, Native people 
traded a lot of perishables, uh, skins, food, um, uh, uh, wooden bowls and brooms and all kinds of things. And uh, they would go along these, these, um, these trade lines. And in archaeology, we actually found a lot of, of materials that are, are made of exotic stone. They're, the stone is not found in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff, these stones have been identified um, geologically, and uh, they're coming from uh, Indiana Hornstone from Indiana, Point Ridge Chalcedony from Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania Jaspers, uh, even uh, Labrador Quartzite. So uh, these, these are far-ranging, all the way up into the historic period. In fact, uh, historic documents tell us how uh, uh, the Mohicans and other groups actually traveled all the way down to um, the Carolinas mm. uh, for trading and for trapping uh, during the historic uh, fur trade um, connection. Well, it's really interesting to, to learn about how these trails were used, uh, the ones that may uh, still be uh, in existence, uh, maybe overgrown, uh, but they're still there and, and had a very important uh, very important use for a lot of these indigenous people. I want to thank uh, Lucianne Lavin, Director of Research and Collections at the Institute for American Indian Studies. That's in, that's in Washington, Connecticut. She's also an anthropologist and archaeologist. Lucianne, thank you so much for telling us a little bit about the trails today. Thank you for inviting me. Also, Kevin McBride, Director of Research at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center. Kevin, thank you for joining us as well. My pleasure. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Still no state budget. Will Connecticut parks be impacted? We'll find out more after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Hiking, boating, beaches. We know Connecticut parks have something for everyone. Now, lawmakers still don't have a budget. Have you wondered whether this will impact your favorite park or trail this summer? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. In studio with us now is Eric Hammerling, Executive Director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Now, Eric, um, I think um, we had a question from a listener a little bit uh, earlier about a trail that ran through her property. Uh, Can you tell us about her question was, how does she find out more? Sure. There's a lot of information out there. Obviously, uh, Google is one of those places where a lot of people start. But uh, there also is a a state uh, archaeologist and a state historic and preservation office. Uh, They have a ton of information. We have found out a lot about uh, many of the Blue Blaze hiking trails, history, uh, and coincidence with uh, Native American trails through going right to the state archaeologist. And um, I would certainly recommend that as a first place to to go. You mentioned the Blue Blaze uh, hiking trails. So when we're on those, are some of them maybe intertwined with these old Native American trails? What do we know? Yeah. Well, um, as your earlier guest mentioned, there's a lot that we don't know. But but what we do know is that over time, the paths uh, that are now the Blue Blazed Hiking Trails, and there's 825 miles of Blue Blazed Hiking Trails uh, that volunteers of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association maintain all over Connecticut. Um, and uh, along that trail path, uh, the trails change as landowners uh, decide they might like to have a trail in a slightly different place or maybe off their property altogether. 
Um, and we would say that those uh, trails that have probably changed the least over time are those that are the least developable. So, for example, uh, you know, the Metacomet Trail or the Matabisa Trail, those uh, ridgeline trails that were talked about earlier, those are the least developable trails and are likely those that have been in the paths uh, where they are right now uh, for probably thousands of years. You've been on the show before, but for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with your organization, tell us a little bit more about what the Forest and Park Association does. Sure. Uh, well, the Connecticut Forest and Park Association is actually the oldest conservation organization uh, in Connecticut. It's a private, nonprofit, membership-based uh, organization. And we like to talk about you know doing four different things. We do advocacy. We do conservation, you know, land conservation. We do recreation. Uh, and education. Uh, the recreation is really uh, most related to what we're talking about today with trails. Um, and we have, you know, volunteers who help with maintaining the uh, 825 miles of Blue Blaze hiking trails. And also, uh, you know, we work uh, and have worked since 1993 to bring Connecticut Trails Day to the state. Uh, that's actually the largest uh, Trails Day celebration taking place anywhere in the nation. And just that weekend, the first weekend in June, there were uh, 236 events happening throughout the state, taking people out on trails uh, with people who know about them and can interpret them. And actually, there is uh, a lot of events that took place on what were likely Native American trails uh, as well. Now, you mentioned uh, trail maintenance. I want to know more about how with the, the, the state budget problems, how that's impacted. You mentioned you rely heavily on volunteers. We do. Uh, we do get some funding from uh, state grants, uh, and there is some a small amount of federal funding that comes because uh, those trails that I mentioned before, the Metacomet, Metabesit, uh, and also the Minunkatuck and up into uh, uh, toward the New Hampshire border, it's now a National Scenic Trail, uh, the New England National Scenic Trail. Um, but other than that, we really rely on you know members and volunteers who are spending over over 20,000 hours every year out maintaining the trails. And maintaining them means they're you know clipping brush, they're painting blazes on trees, they're doing all the things that uh, many people don't notice as they walk through the woods. Um, but without those, uh, people get lost uh, or, or get hurt. So we want to keep people safe and have that outdoor experience be a great one. Now, uh, you mentioned the trail maintenance is important. Uh, when people pay to go into a park, they expect certain services. Could the state be doing more? And if there isn't money, could the federal government be giving more? Are we applying for the right uh, grants to help with that? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and we've often wondered that ourselves. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the state parks are 100 percent funded by state funding. There's no federal funding that comes to support the state parks. And even the money that you pay when you go into a state park that money goes to the general fund. It doesn't actually go to fund the state parks. So what the state parks have to do every year is get money back from the general fund. And unfortunately, as, uh, as you know, the budget has been in a cutting mode over the last several years. Um, and because the parks are 100 uh, percent reliant on the general fund, whenever there's a cut, the parks get hit hard. Um, just this last year, and unfortunately, uh, you know, we see some of these uh, cuts likely to continue. But this last year, there were four state campgrounds that were closed. Uh, almost half of the seasonal workers who do most of the maintenance between spring and fall in the parks uh, were cut. Um, uh, hours were reduced. Uh, you know, services like having lifeguards at swimming areas. Uh, unfortunately, uh, many of those uh, were uh, curtailed. So. 
there has been an ongoing uh, cut. Uh, you know, this year, of course, we're now at the uh, at the verge of a new fiscal year. We're very concerned about uh, what may happen mm-hmm. again. Uh, the the only saving grace for the state parks uh, in the first quarter of the year, and you know, there's been a lot of talk about a, a mini budget or uh, you know some sort of uh, short term budget. The first quarter of the year happens to be the high time for people visiting parks, and there are actually more revenues that come in than the expenses uh, to maintain them. So we're hoping that the cuts won't be as draconian at the beginning of the year. Now, Eric, we just have a couple of minutes. There is one proposal on the table to help uh, the parks. Can you tell us briefly about that? Yeah, something that we've really advocated for strongly is a passport to the parks program. Uh, And we were happy to hear uh, Representative Tony Walker mentioned that, uh, you know, yesterday, and we've heard uh, both Republicans and Democrats talk about the need to do something special to protect the parks. Uh, what the Passport to the Parks does, uh, it would be funded through a, a $10 charge on your uh, DMV registration that you do every other year. And in return for that $10 charge, you would get into the parks for free. So uh, if you think about just, you know, one visit to, uh, you know, at one of the state beaches, uh, which are state parks on the weekend, that's a $13 uh, admission. Y- you would get, you know, for essentially $5 a year, mm-hmm. free access to the parks, and it would generate enough funding to help to maintain them. Well, we're still waiting to see what lawmakers will do. No budget yet, and the deadline is approaching, July 1. Uh, we do want to thank you, Eric Hammerling. I guess the question with the passport of the parks, as the budget problem continues, will that fee be increased uh, every couple of years? We don't know. <laughs> well, you know, we certainly think that uh, it, it probably merits that, um, but we would love to keep it where it is and make sure there's sustainable funding for the parks. Well, I want to thank Eric Hammerling for joining us, Executive Director of the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Thanks so much for coming in today. Great to be with you, Lucy. Our show produced by Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Uh, check out more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend. <laughs>